0: Again, a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. I've got a conversion therapy update for you. Boris Johnson has now said, two years after Theresa May said that she would ban it, that he will be banning it. But he still hasn't banned it, and I wish they would just get the tuck on with it. Welcome to A Gay and a Non-Gay. Welcome to A Gay and A Non-Gay. I'm James Barr. I'm gay. That's Dan Hudson. He's non-gay.
1: This week's episode is a very difficult and upsetting listen. But, as I'm sure you'll agree, it's incredibly important.
0: We're about to get pretty real on the situation affecting our community in Chechnya. I've always felt that an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And if I'm honest, this episode feels like that. It contains multiple references to the use of concentration camps, murder and torture. (sighs) I mean, I I don't know what to tell you, but
1: I do know how important it is this is all talked about. So in April 2017, the world learned that anti-gay purges were being carried out in Chechnya, a semi-autonomous republic within the Russian Federation. This has continued over the last three years and it's included state-sanctioned murder Forced disappearances, abductions, torture, imprisonment and an unknown number of people have died after being detained in what are described by human rights groups as concentration camps. Amnesty International say that LGBTQ plus
0: people are living in fear of humiliation, torture and death at the hands of the authorities. The head of the Chechen Republic says gay people don't exist in Chechnya and that such people would be killed by their own families. In some cases, gay men have been let out of prison specifically to
1: enable their family to murder them. A report by journalist Masha Gessen in The New Yorker revealed that in the absence of international political pressure, LGBTQ plus people in Chechnya had formed a vast underground network of safe houses, contacts and pipelines to help some of these vulnerable people escape And after reading this article, renowned filmmaker David France travelled to Chechnya and for the next two years embedded himself inside this network of incredibly brave people who are putting their lives at risk to help others. You can watch Welcome to
0: Chechnya on BBC iPlayer in the UK or HBO in the US. And David today joins us from New York on the podcast. If you're moved by what you hear today, please consider donating to the Russian LGBT Network, Head to help.lgbtnet.org slash Chechnya. A gay and a non-gay. Hi, David. Hey, how are you? Um, all right. <laughs> Although, if I'm honest, I found this movie incredibly difficult to watch. Yeah. As I'm sure many of us did, gay or non-gay.
2: It's not a pretty story. It, even just knowing about it is, you know, awful. I mean, here's an atrocity that is ongoing. It's Hitler-like. It is generating almost no, you know, outrage by world leaders. You know, I felt obliged to go and amplify the voices of the people who are countering it there in Russia. And why is why is the world ignoring it? You know, one can only guess. I and mean, You know, I think you need to do like a PhD dissertation on it to try to figure this thing out. The revelation of this genocide against LGBTQ Chechens uh, in the south of Russia made headlines in April of 2017. And that was just a few weeks, really, after Trump comes into power. And Trump really changed everything about the news cycle, I think. Not him alone, but I think he's had an enormous global impact on the way news is covered and the shallowness of the way news is covered. And certainly we've seen that even pre-Trump in the UK around Brexit, etc., that we have a, a media sphere that makes very little room for the kind of in-depth stories from other parts of the world that deserve coverage. That used to be the the purview of the wheelhouse for global media. And in this instance, that everything's so um, inwardly focused and kind of character and personality driven that even an atrocity of this sort, a, a crime against humanity like we haven't seen in generations, can't find um, a place to hold on to in uh, in newspapers and news reporting organizations around the world. So I think. I blame the media the most for not holding politicians to account for this, but certainly it's the politicians who created this problem for the media in the first place.
0: So take us back then to that moment where you first saw this article and decided to do what you could about it.
2: You know, I read those articles in April 2017, and it wasn't until later that summer that that the New Yorker sent a reporter into Russia to see what was going on, and um, and she reported that in the absence of this kind of you know heated, uh, angry res- response from the rest of the world, the atrocity was ongoing and it was left to just ordinary people in Russia to mount some sort of response to this. And she painted a picture of a desperate campaign by LGBTQ Russians to build this vast underground railroad, really, of uh, safe houses and pipelines and connections at borders and stuff that you could only imagine in movies. And that in fact, They were also going into Chechnya and rescuing people by hand in these daring, really perilous missions that uh, the world knew nothing about. So I reached out to them right away and said, let me tell your story, let me witness this in a way to help bring a larger attention to what's going on there. I was shocked with what I saw, that this thing was still ongoing and how horrible the treatment of, against the queer community is there. But also shocked by the willingness of these people who had staged this response to take on such risk, to really give their entire lives over to this, you know, desperate campaign. They moved me in really, really fundamental ways. I don't think I've ever met people who could have been doing anything else, who instead gave themselves over entirely to rescue a group of people they don't even know. That's what really moved me about this story. Not... The hatred not the atrocity itself but the ways these people who are just like you and me just derailed their whole lives i can't i, I can't find the words that explain what they've done
0: i mean we see that in the movie i think in, in parts they're risking their own lives their own safety to help other people who are just as vulnerable as they are dan and i did a documentary about gay conversion therapy happening in the uk and i feel like it wasn't enough and i I've cried about it. Like, I feel like I've done a lot, but I haven't done enough. And I wonder if you feel that in this situation too. What can we do that is enough?
2: What we have to do, first of all, is reject this silence around this subject. You doing this segment on your podcast is part of that. We all went silent after those first stories three years ago. And we did it because we didn't have the, the guts to do what those queer Russians have done, which is to say, we can't just turn our backs on this. We can't just you know, wish them well. We've got to do something. And uh, what, what I felt I could do as a filmmaker was to, to elevate their stories in a way that gives people an understanding of what's happening there, that breaks through the, the media silence, that challenges and confronts head on the denials by Putin and the Kremlin that anything is happening there at all. You know, they have said to us over the years, over the three years since this, uh, this genocide has begun, that they have traveled in, they've sent investigators in and human rights experts into Chechnya, and they don't find anybody who testifies to any aspect of this. There is no evidence. That's what they say. Uh, welcome to Chechnya, you know, is that evidence. And that evidence, if it's not going to be judged in a court in Russia, should at least be judged in the court of public opinion. So talk about it make sure people aren't forgetting it. Another thing we can do is to help those folks who are doing the work in Russia. I mean, it's the Russian LGBT network, which is a national organization set up to do things like have workshops and conferences around, you know, issues of importance to the community. They they were never in the in the business of operating by night in the shadows, in safe houses, in secret locations, switching cars and switching homes and hiding themselves and fleeing danger themselves. So here's an organization that's taken all of this on. They need our help. Their partner there is the Moscow Community Center setting up all these safe houses. They need our help. And the final thing we can do is to talk to our own governments and hold them to account on this, make them pay attention to this, make them become an active participant in the campaign to respond to this. It says at the end of the film that nobody who the, these activists have relocated in the first two years of the crisis there has been relocated in the United States, but nobody has been relocated in the UK either. There are a handful of governments that stepped up and opened up backdoor humanitarian visas for people to flee and find safety and begin to set up a life elsewhere. That hasn't been true in your country or in mine. David, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this
1: and thinking, why is it that some of these people can't just just get on a plane
2: and claim asylum at the airport? They would need a tourist visa first, and they're not getting tourist visas uh, in order to claim asylum. Most governments in the world are not responding to the pleas of the activists in Russia to allow them any avenue to get there. What Canada and France and Germany and Norway and so many other countries have done is to offer humanitarian visas that say that we understand you're coming to this country and that you will claim asylum or refugee status and we welcome you to do that. And that's a very special category of visa that allows people to travel. United States has just rejected almost anybody who comes from a Muslim region in the world, as Chechnya is, so it's not especially an anti-gay policy in the U.S. as much as it is an anti-Muslim policy, hmm. but there is no, you know, active defense of LGBTQ folks around the world on the part of the State Department in the U.S. And that vanished the day that the Trump administration came in.
0: So you've you've been there, you've been on the ground in in Russia and Chechnya. Can you just tell us what you saw? So that if if people that are listening now haven't heard this story, they can understand the depth and and horrendousness of it
2: you know the queer community in russia is pretty much in shock after the fall of the soviet union in the in the early 90s there was a um, a period of great cultural openness in the country all the anti-queer laws of the soviet union were wiped away and there was a building of a community there a real vibrant rich community culturally socially politically artistically that flourished for many years, and it wasn't until Putin um, began his uh, ascent for his second set of terms, his return to power in 2011, 2012, that he began sharpening a blade against the queer community. You know, he instituted a culture war against the community that resulted in 2013 in this this law they call the anti-gay propaganda law that makes it in Russia illegal. To say anything in defense of the queer community in public in a way that someone who's a minor might hear it, it was cast as a way to protect minors from you know the, the scourge of knowing that that queer people have rights or have the right to even argue for their rights, and that began this cycle against the community. That's a cycle of violence. It incited buggish vigilantes to hunt down queers in the last couple of years. And it gave a wide, it opened a door wide to people like Ramzan Kadyrov, the head of Chechnya, to enact his own style of crackdown on gay liberties. It's been a whirlwind that came to its most recent head just two weeks ago when the, the Kremlin pushed through a series of constitutional amendments designed principally to allow Putin to be president for life. And they did pass. It was an all-or-nothing referendum. And uh, it included at least two anti-gay measures, one um, constitutionally now prohibiting queers from marrying. So it's just been a, a whiplash for the community. It makes it very unsurprising that the extreme political elements in the country would be enacting extreme responses to it, like this one, which is unmatched since Hitler a government-led, top-down, systematic campaign to round up and eliminate all LGBT people. The final solution, we've heard of this before, and there it is happening right before our eyes. And that's why, for me, it's a horror that nobody's responding to it politically. Like, where is the United Nations? Where is the Security Council? Where is the European Union? Where are all these people who understand what is right and wrong about this situation? And why aren't they speaking? Why aren't they doing something Effectively, that could bring it to an end. I wanted to ask you about the alleged roundup, abduction, and and torture of of gay men in the Republic. (laughs)
1: That's a clip from David's film, Welcome to Chechnya, and leader Ramzan Kadyrov being interviewed by US television. His response now you can see why he came here and what he's getting at with these questions. This is nonsense. We don't have such people here, we don't have any gays. More from David shortly.
0: A gay and a non-gay. Were you scared when you were there?
2: I was scared for the people whose story I was telling, who were sharing their story with me, who were allowing me to come in and film what they were doing. I was scared that something that I might inadvertently do had the potential to expose them and to endanger people even further and I worked very um, diligently I think to make sure that that I caused no harm and that that that's what kept me awake at night did I feel the hot breath of this you know hatred uh, every moment I was there I did we felt it in the safe houses there was security in the safe houses all the windows were all curtained there was you know, I we were in hiding. I had found this deep hiding place with this folks, and uh, and any time you heard a, a twig snap out the window, we jumped. We worried that they had found us, and they had found other safe houses uh, before I began my my work with them, and and they had revealed safe houses after I finished my work with them, uh, and then to, to be uh, allowed to record on their uh, really extreme and dangerous extraction missions was certainly terrifying. And these were cases where often people who have been targeted inside Chechnya cannot find their way out of the republic on their own. And they reach out to the activists and say, look, I got to get out of here or they're going to kill me. And I just don't have the wherewithal to do it myself. I'm not clever enough to do it without detection. I don't have the money. I don't have the capacity to get out on my own. And in those instances, these ordinary... Russian activists. I keep calling them ordinary because they they are so much like me and you, but they're doing these extraordinary things. They actually go into the region and concoct methods and cover stories and scenarios to allow them to physically accompany people out of the out of the region and and into uh, nearby airports and um, to nearby countries, if possible, or to distant cities inside Russia, where they might be able to park them for a while. And those missions, those extraction missions, are the, the most dangerous order. And when I was filming the scene that we have in the in the film of one of those extractions, you know, I don't think I exhaled the entire time I was I was witnessing what we were doing. It was we were really just you know moments ahead of discovery, moments ahead of pursuit. Um, And had we been discovered, there's no telling what might have happened to us, me filming the activists doing their work, but we did know what would happen to the young woman who had reached out for help. and, And that knowing what would happen to her is what really motivated us as we were trying to get her out of there.
1: But I mean, you must be in real danger because they'll look at your passport, take one look at uh, the
2: other films that you've made. Yeah. I, Google reveals my my base interests.
1: Yeah. I mean, do the, do the Chechen authorities not just take one look at you and think, this guy is clearly here to stitch us up. Let's get rid of him. I mean, that could so easily happen.
2: Well, I will tell you that as we were leaving the region with Anya, the young woman, um, I was in the second car. We were the security car. There was nothing that attached us to the car in front of us. There was no reason to believe that we were at all connected. Uh, Anya and her car got through the, the last of the checkpoints, but they stopped us and they saw my American passport and it did freak them out and they did detain me. It was just great good luck that, that the checkpoint you know, was not internet connected. They didn't look me up. They sat with me and um, you know, interrogated me to understand why I was there. And I had, uh, you know, I had developed a a rich cover story to describe myself as just kind of a nutty, wealthy American tourist who was spending, you know, too much money doing extreme kind of tourism. And it worked. They, uh, They believed me, so they were able to let me go. But yeah, thank God there was no Google in that little unwired hut that they, that they kept their authorities in.
0: There's obviously a lot of violent footage in the film as well, And I shudder to think of what's happening that isn't on film. Did you have to make tough decisions on what to keep and what not to keep?
2: We were very uh, careful about um, wanting to inform the audience and not wanting to unduly upset the audience. We wanted to Im- empower the viewer to know what was happening there beyond any doubt and to, to become kind of implicated in this the knowledge and to to help the audience find motivation to do something to help. So there were, there were aspects obviously that we didn't put in because they, they were uh, you know, too extreme and might be more powerfully used as evidence in court than um, as evidence in you know, a documentary record like this. But mostly what we were doing was trying to respond to the claims of the leadership in Russia that this is not happening and that there's no evidence of this happening when indeed there's evidence, and as you see in the film, it's evidence that they recorded themselves as they were committing these tr- crimes. They recorded them either as, you know, deliverables that they would give to their superiors to show that they are carrying out the orders of the, the local leader in Chechnya, or as trophies, joyously shared among themselves as uh, kind of gleeful examples of, of what they're what they're working on. They were all sourced publicly. I mean, these are uh, videos that they were swapping on WhatsApp groups and Telegram groups and, and other open groups. They were making no s- effort to keep it a secret. That's the evidence that the courts in Russia have failed to allow. That's the evidence that the investigative committee in Russia has failed to investigate. And instead, they just, they purposefully turned their, their back to this. And that's what the film is hopefully is able to accomplish, which is to say, it's time to start weighing this evidence and it's time to start seeking justice.
1: You've used this revolutionary technology to make the film, whereby the people that you see aren't actually, it's someone else's face. And you know, it's really remarkable. You wouldn't know by watching at all. If I hadn't read that that's what you had done, you know, I wouldn't know from watching it. Um, How does it all work and, and how did it come about?
2: What I learned when I first arrived in the safe house system was that the people who are survivors and who are fleeing for their lives, are being pursued across the globe. It's not enough to get a, away from and outside of Chechnya. This campaign is described by Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader in Chechnya, as a blood cleansing. It is a perverse theory that it would be possible to round up and liquidate every LGBTQ Chechen, and that in doing that, you would somehow render the ethnic minority there you know, free of gay people. There's a vast diaspora of Chechens around the globe. Pressure is put on them by the government or their, on their family members back home to pursue these people, mostly young people, as you see in the film, pursue them wherever they go and bring them back for this ultimate conclusion, this ultimate elimination. And so when I went to them and said, let me tell your story, they said, you know you know what that would do to me? Um, it would kill me. So I I promised that I would find some way to disguise them. What we ultimately were able to develop for the first time was this technique that allows us to, to use other people's faces and digitally map them over the faces of the people in the film. So it's a pixel for pixel uh, mapping that doesn't change anything about what happens in the film. It just changes the skin of the person who, who is there depicted in the film. And in order to do that, I went in New York and Los Angeles, mostly in New York, to activists uh, for the most part, LGBTQ activists. And I said, would you lend your face as a shield, like a, a human shield, to protect uh, the f- folks who are in the film? Uh, and they all said yes. They were actively interested in doing it. It was a kind of an activism that that moved beyond the street activism that, that they've, they've been carrying out in defense of the people in Chechnya. And so they came into a, a studio with me and let me film their faces from all angles and then I I ingested this data into an algorithm that through artificial intelligence uh, and deep machine learning was able to do that mapping pixel over pixel so when you see the person in the film crying for example that's actually them crying it's just somebody else's eyelids somebody else's cheeks somebody else's mouth
0: it's really moving because it's kind of it's exactly what you sort of feel you wish you could do, and you are kind of empathizing with the character a lot. That is amazing. Um, Since this movie came out, I'm sure a lot more people have contacted the Russian LGBT organizations, and I just wonder, have you heard from anyone suffering right now? This is still very much happening, right?
2: It's still very much happening. The the film launched, of course, on the, the 30th of June, 1st of July, Um, But several weeks before that, the trailer dropped and it it went viral in Russia. Within 36 hours, I think, it had over a million views. A lot of those views were people playing guessing games in Chechnya about who was who. Could they figure anything out about what was going on there? It put an additional fear in the hearts of queer people who are still inside Chechnya. Many of them reached out. There are an estimated... You know, tens of thousands of people who are trying to survive inside Chechnya without leaving. They're trying to not be uh, exposed. They're trying to live a peaceful life in their community, in their culture, in their extended families. People don't want to leave, they want to be okay there. So it wouldn't be possible, for example, to just go and remove all queer people from Chechnya and call the problem solved. It's hard for people in those really traditional cultures to, to think of ways of, of having a life outside of there. And many are constantly having to confront that question there, unfortunately, because the real solution is to, you know, to outlaw these crimes, not to rescue one by one the queer people who are left there.
0: Thank you so much
2: for chatting to us. Yeah, thank you. I really hope this makes a difference. I'm sure it will. Thanks for letting the world know.